Hello and welcome to the Business of Data podcast. My name is Catherine King and I'll be your host. In this podcast, we chat to senior executives from a range of departments, industries and functions, all about their passions, experiences and challenges within data analytics. Let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Business of Data podcast brought to you by Corinium. This week we are talking all about enabling data for good and to do just that is it's my pleasure to be joined by Stephen Totman who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Privatar. Now if you haven't had the pleasure of meeting Steve there's a few intro facts to get you up to speed. So Steve has been with Privatar since September 2020 and prior to that has worked within some very well-known brands, uh, including Cloudera, Precisely and IBM as well. Now, if you can't find Steve at his work desk, you'll most likely find him enjoying some time in Spain, enjoying making his very own wine and olives. Steve, how are you doing? Very well, very well. Yes, quite a diverse background. Uh, a little bit there. I love that. And I, I've got to dive straight into the wine and olives. That sounds absolutely delightful. But not only just enjoying them, but making your own, right? Yeah, no, it's um, it's an interesting hobby. So uh, what I'm learning, but uh, learning from people who know a lot more about it. But, uh, you know, we spend all this time in the data world where there is no physical end product. So it's quite interesting mm. to, to see something where there is an end deliverable and you know, people do like the end output, but it's quite a complicated process, just like data engineering. It's and if you get it wrong, it goes really wrong. <laughs> I love that making more uh, similar solutions to vinegar than wine. Um, yes, correct. I love that, and and as frequent listeners to the podcast will know, I, I often enjoy this part of the podcast most, finding out about people's interests and hobbies because I think. There's often such a clear correlation between the data world, right? And as, as you were saying there, kind of, we, we can draw some real cheesy comparisons to data quality and ingredients and all the rest, but also yeah. just, just having that that real knowledge of what it goes in to create something that is uh, uh, consumable, right? Yeah, no. And in previous companies, you know, um, you know, Cloudera was all about, you know, big data. And you always used to hear people talk about data as a new oil, and actually, Almar, our CTO, you know, would would have a counterpoint to that. But um, the food analogy works really well with data. So mm. oil is not perishable. Data is perishable. It degrades very quickly over time. Hence, all your comments about data quality, et cetera. Um, also, in the wrong hands, you know, both can be pretty dangerous. Um, yeah. But um, the, the interesting thing about uh, <clears throat> wine is, you know, it, it does ultimately, you know, generally have a good outcome. If you give it to people, it it, it changes people's viewpoints, et cetera. So um, you can have a lot of fun with the analogy, but the, uh, you know, the most interesting thing about it is, is, is the structure to me. It's the, it's the process you have to go through um, and the timing and all those other things. And then mm -hmm. even down to the presentation, right? Like, you know, you can have an incredible wine, but it, you know, a huge amount matters about the bottle and other things about how you deliver it. So absolutely absolutely yeah no it's a it's a great analogy and i think um yeah it just just makes you think about i think that this is the thing right so many data leaders i speak to nowadays it is about pulling yourself out of out of the weeds of where you are and actually if you do think of an analogy like this suddenly you can attach the the challenges that you're going through in, in something else and it, it can can give that mental space to to think about it in a different light 
yeah, the ability to kind of talk about it. I, I was very lucky at uh, Cloudera to travel quite a lot with Armour, the CTO, and he had mm. some amazing analogies about, you know, um, he, he, his favorite was kind of um, the digital camera analogy, which is, you know, at the time, a lot of process had gone into making things better. And, you know, 10 years ago, everyone would buy a digital SLR. And, you know, they would buy, you know, higher megapixels and et cetera. Yeah. Today, no one carries, well, very few people carry digital SLRs because actually what mattered is not the taking of the photo, but the distribution of the photo. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, his point was that, you know, if you look at smartphones, they were dominating the market because not because they had initial better quality pictures, they, they had much lower quality, but it's not the taking of the picture, it's then distributing it and sharing it and posting it on you know your favorite site and showing it to your friends and then storing it over time. And the workflow is incredibly important. You need to think about that in that data pipeline and way too much time and thought goes into kind of the, the plumbing piece and not enough yeah. into the delivery, the visualization, visualization, all of those pieces as well. So. Um, and and it, it was it was always fun to watch him present and go through and he would put out his phone and you know so those analogies are very critical especially on the business layer right you've got to data is you know an intangible thing you know it's not valued um you know Doug Laney from uh, he's done those books uh, you know like infonomics etc and his new one data juice all are trying to make the case that organizations should consider data like a corporate asset they should treat it as mm -hmm. such you know etc they should treat it as though something is on their balance sheets but still today not enough organizations do so you know it's it's yeah. an interesting world we, we live in yeah absolutely now uh just before we do dive into the main topic today about data for good and, and what that means uh for for us uh talk, talk to me a little bit about what it means to be a chief strategy officer what do you get up to day to day um it's actually really fun um so you get a really good mix of spending time with um prospects and customers we're very lucky to have uh, a set of customers that have been very helpful uh it involves interactions with the board it involves interactions with uh engineering and, and product you know so i get to spend a lot of time with with different groups and most importantly like you you get to influence and guide where things are going i mean i i think um you know, it's really interesting. Before I joined uh, Provitar, I, I found myself at previous companies always talking and presenting like, you know, at Cloudera, we would do these big data events like Strata. And I found myself every year, I would do lots of presentations around governance. And, you know, I was looking after the financial yeah. services vertical with Dr. Harmon, you know, a lot of FinSev. But I kept on doing presentations around, you know, using data safely and legally and ethically. And I, you know, you, you find, I found this underlying kind of, passion around those things and to then be able to spend actual dedicated time on this. I mean, I, I've been around the world. I've seen some very diverse use cases with, with data. Um, I've seen a lot of use cases, which um, kind of cross the creepy line where you literally sit in the meetings and you're like, you're really thinking of doing this sometimes, you know, for the greater good, but sometimes you're like, you know, I don't know if I'd be comfortable about this. And I found myself presenting at Strata trying to convince people that they had to think about the ethics of the use cases. They had to yeah. be sure that it was legally right. Um, and then, you know, I got involved in some charitable organizations where what you do with data can have real impact on people's lives, you know, so across yeah. the board there and to be, you know, able to, you know, influence heavily, like 
the most fun thing is arguing and discussing things, right? I don't think good products are ever born out of, you know, consensus and, you know, you know mm-hmm. um, a dictatorship. I think good products are born out of argument and discussion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's getting involved in those discussions, trying to provoke them, trying to see, you know, get people to see things differently, convince them in some cases. Um, that's That's what it involves, so. Are you wanting to meet with other senior executives in the data and analytics space? In an environment that is created for connection and inspiration? Then why not join one of our in-person conferences? We have events all over the world, and you can find out the ones closest to you by visiting careniumintelligence.com slash events. Yeah, no, no, it's really interesting, actually, you, you mentioned about the kind of creepy aspect, because that, that was going to be one of my first questions to you, with the fact that you in your career, but then also in your role now uh, at Privitar, the fact that you you do speak to a diverse set of organizations and a diverse set of uh, case studies in each of them and how they're using their data. In your experience, how many organizations would you say are currently towing that line of creepy versus personalized? Because I think we've spoken through so many different examples historically on the podcast where some brands can do one thing and some can't because of their relationship with their consumers and what you as a consumer expect. But how many would you say uh, on average are really starting to toe that line between that, that creepy side and that personalized side? Um, that's a, that's a really interesting kind of data point to think about. Um, I think it depends on the age of the company in general, older companies, I think are, are much more, sort of conservative and thoughtful perhaps um but equally it it, it it often has an impact on what area they're in um it, it's very interesting like you know the, i'm sure you've covered the sort of classic examples that everyone likes to, to focus on um when Protel was actually being set up the cambridge analytica scandal hit um in mm-hmm. the uk so jason and, and john the two founders like had perfect timing around around that but um it, you know, I, I do think it matters a lot about the age of the people making the decisions around the use cases, people okay. involved. Um, one of the things that I've kind of pushed in the past is that, you know, when you think about the legality of a use case, it, it should be black and white, right? It should be, can we use this data for this use yeah, case? Yes. And regulations are quickly evolving here. <clears throat> in fact, regulations seem to be exploding in this space as well. But mm. reg- regulations have to be interpreted. Um Two different lawyers will look yeah. at the same regulation and have different opinions. Um, we we actually um, we had the same problem at Protel. We were looking at these, you know, different verticals and regulations. And in order to solve the problem, we actually acquired a company. We 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 brought in that expertise, um, that sort of regulatory intelligence. But the ethics of a use case, which is a really interesting area that people are starting to expand into now, ethics is so dependent on location, context, and other pieces. There are so many variables there. And, you know, they factor massively. Um, you know, in my career, I've, I've seen use cases in China where literally when you were, you know, talking to the customers about the use cases, you know, I, I went to a particular bank and in that bank, your face was your ID card. Literally, as I walked into the bank with two, yeah. two colleagues, the, there was a camera facing uh, the front door. And, you know, you see, you know, you, you see yourself on a picture, you naturally look at it. Only this time there was a little yellow box around each of our faces. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then all this crazy script in Mandarin and a bunch of security guards came out because, you know, I wasn't meant to, you know, or hadn't previously been there. Yeah. And, uh, 
CIO came down and on the elevator up, I was presenting to their board and I was like, that was amazing. And he's like, yes, in my bank, your face is your past. I was just like, I just came from, you know, a meeting at the Fed in San Fran, you know, very, very different privacy laws. And he said, oh, you know, here, you know, in, in this particular region, he gave me this story of um, some criminal who turned up to a rock concert and um, all the police have little cameras. And as the mm. guy went in, they, they tagged him. And then obviously these alerts went off. And then to find him, they literally just went to the front of the stands and stand and seven police officers arrested him in his seat. If you're yeah. a criminal hiding in a crowd would seem to be the safest place, but not in certain places, right? But equally, you know, you know, th those those rules are, and how people treat data and, and think about what is safe. You know, we all remember the Minority Report film where he's walking through and it recognizes him and the adverts change. Some people would be comfortable. Yeah. You know, so it, it's that it's that piece. And this is the thing, right? And I, I there was a there was a thought leader that mentioned something that stuck with me for for a few months now up on stage at one of our one of our events in London, which is this is bigger than the data team. Like a lot of the topics we talk about, whether it's data visualization, data quality, etc. Like the presenters in the data team, right? But what we're talking about here is so much bigger. It's society wide. It's culture wide, and we as a data team have to kind of keep our, our finger on the pulse a bit to understand what is and what isn't acceptable. And I think you, you made two really interesting points there, Steve. One about kind of the age of the company and the age of the executive, whether it's a younger company, they perhaps are more agile, they're not dealing with as much legacy, they're able to implement quicker solutions and, and able to, to move things quicker versus uh, kind of, like I say, operating on some legacies. You've got those kind of uh, implements. But then, as you mentioned, the, the, the geo part of this as well the different cultural expectations um and i know you know we're, we're based here in the uk um facial recognition technology has been an incredibly debatable topic um you know it's something that that i think will continue to be controversial in its uses and yet most of us on our iphones have facial recognition enabled to use as a uh, password to get in Totally. Our, our cost so of our cost of privacy is very low. And that's actually a really important factor when you think about it, which is when you're looking at these use cases. Um, I've actually made the case before that when you think of a use case and you think, is it something you should be doing or not? You should not think about how your kids would feel about it because kids grow up in a world where their lives are, you know, there's very little privacy and mm. they, they often don't understand it. If, if you've got a teenager or a, a young kid that's like, posting all this stuff on social media and you want to make a point to them. And I, I got this from a, a chart, you know, sort of security expert, make them Google themselves. If you're trying to make the point that like, they should be careful about what they post, make them Google themselves, make them realize what's already out there on them. Um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good piece. It's certainly not adults because to some degree, you know, we have a very low price. The way to think about it is what your parents or grandparents would think. I used to present at uh, conferences in the U S and I would stick up a picture of, of the British King and Queen and say, think about, you know, what granny and granddad or mom and dad would think. Also, what was amusing is how many people thought they were genuinely my grandparents and didn't make the sort of uh, slightly wisecrack I was I was making. But you, know, you do have to think about those those you know, those pieces as well. And I think organizations need this. And um, you know, we focus, you know, a lot on the legal side. We're starting to look heavily at the mm. ethics. I think there's the ethics of the particular data set, you know, can you use this data set ethically and then blend that in the ethics of the particular use case. 
And that piece is very, very contextual, very like, you know, dependent on which country you're in, which vertical you're mm -hmm. in, you know, intent. And there are always bypasses, right? Like, you know, people don't want to be tracked, but if you're looking at financial crime or if you're looking at fraud, then, you know, that that those, those same rules don't apply. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, when we've caught up before, I know we, we've spoken about the, the tendency that we can either go one of two ways with this. When you talk about data for good and making and, and making changes and being conscious about doing what's best for society versus scaring the absolute living daylights out of people, because I know you've told me stories and confidence that it's enough to keep you up at night for sure. Now, you tend to side with it's not it's not terribly productive to scare people to the point where they they don't feel that they're unable to do anything. But obviously we need to get the point across as well. It can't be all all fluffy which can be a bit of a tendency around this topic as well so what's your advice to our listeners for kind of meeting in the middle where ethics isn't this huge scary unattainable challenge it can never be taken down versus something that's actually got to be taken very seriously as well where's that middle ground for you yeah um it is an interesting point so um some of those use cases definitely you know are scary but i think i really like your approach and you, you kind of mentioned this which is focusing on the value of the use case and the sort of relative cost. So any organization, when they make a decision around, and to your earlier point, data is just data. Without a use case, it's useless. But if you can apply data to a use case, then it becomes a, an interesting asset or liability to a company if you're doing this sort of analysis. So if you can look at each use case and analyze it for what is the, you know, the benefit of this use case, and if you can tie it to a monetary piece, which is what does this mean to the business? Will we get, um, there, there are generally buckets of use cases. There are cost avoidance use cases. Can we take cost out of the business? There are new revenue streams. There are kind of, you know, new revenue operations. And then there's just <clears throat> generally, you know, learning more about, you know, companies and employees. Um, each one of them has a, an intrinsic value. Um, you know, some of those are high, you know, the, the pandemic has taught, you know, organizations that HR use cases are really interesting, right? The great mm -hmm. sort of, you know, resignation, for example, meant that organizations suddenly wanted to focus on who's going to stay, who's going to go, because if you're an average size organization and you lose, you know, 10% of your workforce and you have to, you know, rehire them, that retraining is massive per, per user. If you're a startup, for example, that can have a massive impact. Um, I've seen use cases in the past where just that alone, you know, could make or break a business. So, you know, focusing on the value of the use case, um, and then you have to consider the cost of, you know, what, you know, what happens if that data set gets into the outside world, you know, uh, many organizations, um, are just waiting for when the data breach that's probably already happened yeah. becomes visible to them. Um, so there's a cost of storing the data. There's a cost of, you know, when customers realize what you're doing, you know, you know, understanding that use case, um, the NHS is actually one of our customers that I, I really I'm very impressed with the way that they look at every case goes through an ethics board. They literally have mm -hmm. a group of people and, and I've got to meet some of the people that uh, represent patients. Hey, if we do this analysis, this is what it means, but equally here's the risk. Um, I think every organization has got to get like that and they move because they've had a data breach or they've had someone question what they're doing with data um, at scale. Um, but you know, there, there, there's some underlying pieces here, but it's, it's a tricky area to navigate. Um, and you know, it, it's funny 20 years ago, 
data governance was a new topic. I, you know, I spent time with some some friends and colleagues and we built out data governance tools. And at the time we were trying to convince people that it was a really good idea that the business and the IT team could communicate. Um, mm. Now I see almost the same thing happening, which is people are realizing that it's not just business and IT. There is a, we call them data guardians, but there are a group of people inside the organization that care about the legal implications. They don't want anyone to go to jail. They don't want to get fined. And they are part of the conversation too. And they all talk completely different languages. The business are all about, hey, we want to target high value customer. The IT team are all about, hey, this table is in Snowflake or in, you know, there's this data science piece in Databricks using Iceberg. And then there's a team of guardians, which are like, hey, there's this regulation that's coming out in Canada. That means that we can or cannot do these things. And they all have to have a seat at the table and they have to communicate. And I think that's a real interesting area, you know? Um, and also, the more you learn about a particular vertical, you learn what is acceptable in those companies in that vertical in that location. Um, and it's a, you know, I think going forward, like, you know, we see these, it's been very interesting to see chief data officers kind of appear. And then we have the CDAOs and, you know, we see that sort of C-level representation, but going forward, it'll be very interesting to see where this kind of plays out. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. It certainly makes uh, my job interesting sitting here and, and kind of watching watching the the industry as, as you say kind of grow and adapt and and deal with these these challenges uh, for for sure. I Are think you seeing more people talk about this topic as well? Is, is is sort of privacy and data? You know, is it a growing topic? Is it like absolutely? I think I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, Steve, when you were, when you framed it as it's not if we get a data breach, it's when. And yep. I think the more that data is being realized as being valuable internally, of course, it's being valued externally as well. Now, we know that most breaches and, and uh, you know, concerns are internal and it's a case of, you know, uh, clicking on a link, et cetera. It's not necessarily kind of having that internal person who's, who's out there to do bad, thankfully, for most organizations. But as we saw in the pandemic, there is an increased risk of cyber-based crime, of data crime. Um, and just as I've said there, organizations are wising up now to, oh, this stuff is quite valuable. So so is uh, everyone else outside the organization. So I think most data teams and IT teams that I speak to, it's it's on their periphery now because it's a case of it's going to happen. And it might be small scale this time. It might be big scale the next time. Uh, but it, it now concerns everyone. It's if you've left your laptop at a train station. It's if you've you know opened up your network and someone else can now see what you're what you're up to. It's a case of you know in the pandemic, is your spouse looking over your shoulder because they've come in to give you a cup of tea, and you're working on something that's very sensitive. All of these concerns I think have just become more increased over the last few years for sure. And and yeah, I think it's just a case that that people are uh, uh, having to talk about this now. It's no longer a, a future problem. It's a it's a now. Yeah, it's interesting to you know everyone cares about privacy, but I actually do find in different verticals I feel that they have different sort of um, they're almost to some degree immune to it in certain verticals. Like so, I, I think in healthcare. I do think when it comes to privacy, people very deeply care about privacy. Absolutely. I think in certain other verticals, in financial services, although they care about privacy, it's much more about we don't want to get fined. The regulations mm -hmm. are much more dominant. Um, 
you know, in NGOs, it's much more about they're trying to focus on doing good and, you know, they perhaps don't understand or realize the implications of privacy. There is no PCI-like standard, like for NGOs. And I think, you know, there's, there's some interesting work to be done there where organizations which you know, are growing or, or don't necessarily have the monetary resources or don't have a regulator yet, you know, they need help because it's often in those organizations that the there's a, the most risk exposure from data today. Um, yeah, I think you, you, you've hit on something really interesting there, actually, when it comes to, to cross industry, it, it comes down to that motivator, right? What is the motivator behind it? And I think, as you mentioned there, the, the healthcare side, it's such sensitive, such private, personal human data versus, and I think, you know, across the different industries, if you look at consumer goods, it's, it's kind of that step back from the person and it's more about your personality and it's more about your conscious choices, et cetera. And I think, yeah, that that motivator behind why you're treating the data with respect does change. And I always find that so interesting when I'm joined on the podcast and in other content forms by leaders who have crossed different industry boundaries in their roles. And they've perhaps been CDO in a couple of different industries and how differently they then need to talk to the culture of their C-suite. Because as you mentioned, in a healthcare company, if you start talking privacy, they're going to be like, absolutely. What do you need? will give you everything you want whereas in other organizations it's like eh but can we get it like well if you read it this way we can kind of do it this way and we'll be fine you know and and it's that cultural shift right which which makes for an interesting interesting discussion yeah no um and that is that is so interesting the the the, the piece about when they look at a use case and they they think about how to work around it and the freedom they think they have to work around it is dependent on the vertical and obviously the 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 sovereign region, um, but it is you know and it, like for example in Germany, they're incredibly good around thinking about data privacy, and it's because of what happened earlier in kind of World War Two, and as a result, privacy is really respected and 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 enforced. Yeah. Whereas I think in other regions like you know that they they don't have the same thing, um, and it is a it is a global problem. It's you know it, you know data moves so freely, and that's again the my, my problem with the oil analogy and even you know our food analogy earlier you couldn't copy data like this and the copy has exactly the same value as the original piece and that's one of the things that you know with, with oil there is no copying of oil right like, yeah. right now there was but um you know that that piece is very interesting data can proliferate so quickly um this degrade over time but it still has value and once you've been tagged with a certain piece of data and it exists there forever hence that earlier point about to kids using the internet and stuff you know making it clear to them that decisions they make now things they post now like you know etc will have massive implications later in life um you know that they, they, they all do matter so yeah yeah absolutely in fact uh my colleague christy ran one of her uh clubhouse business of data fight clubs uh on cancel culture and the fact that there is this thing now where you know you can unearth social media and, and data from years ago and it can be you know you are held accountable and i know from from my generation probably backwards i was probably one of the first you know facebook came about when i was just about to to leave high school um and and you are kind of immune a little bit right because all of your stupid mistakes and and silly opinions when you were younger because and i don't mean that in a patronizing sense i mean that in a sense of you're growing you're learning you're exposing yourself to new new people and and cultures um, and, and suddenly now you're accountable to things you potentially have said as young as nine and 10, if I think of 
people in my own family who have access to to social media in some form um which again puts into this real ethical conundrum right especially if you are a retailer who's using tools to scrape twitter and understand the market suddenly you are you know you're you're really understanding some very young people potentially and marketing to very very young people and the ethics behind that as well um and further down the rabbit hole we could go for for certain yes, but I'm yeah, keeping <laughs> keeping an eye on the time here uh steve so we, we've spoken a lot about kind of where where we are in in the present day i wonder before we kind of uh wrap up here today what what are the, some of the solutions that you're seeing organizations you know come to you and say hey can you help us with what are some of the solutions you're putting in place to to try and better this this scenario um so a couple of things you know we really do focus on the idea that how data is used internally is effectively almost a contract where you define that and you say this is going to be used for this and it's not going to be used for this um we call those contracts policies so we spend a lot of time with customers um helping sort of figure out how to define those policies and um, they are based on a variety of pieces of context. They're based on uh, location. They're, you know, they're based on, you know, the legislation. They're based on the identity of the team or the users that are using them. It's based on the purpose, the intent of usage of the data, and obviously the data contents itself. Um, and we, you know, within our, you know, we build out a, a platform, but we help people kind of take those different pieces. Like, for example, location. What matters is the data source location, the processing location, the data target location, and then the end consumer location. And all of those can be variable. Like, you know, if you're using a cloud store, you could have an end user in Malaysia that's accessing data that's actually stored in London in an AWS cluster that is being processed, you know, in, in London and then distributed across. <clears throat> Every one of those different sovereign regions has legal implications about what you can and cannot do with the data, how it can be aggregated, how it can be shared. So we spent a lot of time with those pieces. Um, I mentioned, you know, we acquired a company called Core Moon two weeks ago, just because that sort of regulatory intelligence about knowing what regulations are here and what are coming. Like, so there's some really interesting regulations in Canada that are now coming through. There's an interesting one that's just starting to appear in the UK as well. Um, what, what impact that will have? Um, organizations need to think about these things and then, at a much more granular level, they need to do things to the data to make it safe. There are primary and secondary identifiers, and often the deepest insights come from that most sensitive data. The way you link data sets is often based on individuals or products and the ability to kind of protect the individual so that you can say, you know, this person has bought this thing or has not, or this person has this condition or does not. At the individual level, you know, things in, there are some geeky stuff around what they call privacy enhancing technology or pets, where you look at things like anonymity within those and differential privacy. And there's really some interesting tech coming as well in terms of how you can sort of federate out questions, et cetera. So we spend time with all those things, but <clears throat> at the end of the day, we're just letting organizations still use their data. So maintain the utility of that data, but protect the privacy of the individuals so that they don't get, you know, fined or, you know, questioned. And, you know, GDPR has been very interesting around things like the right to yeah. be forgotten. So, you know, we're deep into that, but we're just trying to make it easy. I mean, privacy should be a natural consequence of any data platform. It should not be an extra step. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I love that. Love that as a sign bite as well. Uh, Steve, we always end the podcast on the same question, which is, 
if there was one thing throughout kind of the whole discussion we've had here today, or just something that you've kind of thought of in the last minute here, what's the one thing you want our listeners to take with them after they finish the episode here and they go on with their day? What's the one thing you want them to be really thinking about? Um, I think with all the executives and, and, and people I interact with, everyone understands that privacy is important. They, they understand that, you know, it's something they need to do. And then they get a little lost in what they can do about it today. They, you know, either get overwhelmed or they get sort of, they, they think it's too big a problem. You've got mm-hmm. to kind of do this in bite-sized chunks. Um, and you need to start today. You know, your, your customers expect this today. And trying to retrofit privacy into a large system where you're already, you know, building these use cases is the worst thing to do because it will mean that use cases that you've sort of focused on and perhaps built your business on can be ripped out from you immediately. So it's always a case of balancing privacy and utility. And there are, you know, there's a lot of domain expertise in this area, but it's not something you can ignore. And if you ignore it, it's at your peril. That's the thing I would say. I mean, I spent 20 years in this space and, you know, I'm very pleased to see that more people are waking up to this but not enough are moving fast enough. And the regulators are going to, just going to get worse. It's not going to get easier. So that would be my point. Amazing. Steve, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. And uh, I look forward to doing so very soon. Sounds good. Nice, nice chat today. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Do be sure to subscribe and follow the Business of Data podcast wherever you're currently listening to ensure you're always first in line to the latest episode. We'd also appreciate your review as well. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. And as always, find us on socials as well as heading over to the Business of Data platform for more forms of great content, including articles, blogs, and video. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you real soon.